0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and Commodity Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets
1: and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team. Welcome to the FIC Focus podcast, Macro Matters Edition. I'm Ira Jersey, the Chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. We're going off campus again today up to Newark, New Jersey with Robert Tipp, who is the chief investment strategist and head of global bonds for PGM. Robert, thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. Thanks, Harold. Good to be here. So as the head of global bonds, um, you know, I'd love to get your insight about Firstly, what do you think were the primary drivers of the recent sell-off in the bond market? Number one, and then number two, where do you think we go from here, and and what will be the drivers of uh, of the bond market going forward?
0: Sure. So, I think there are, there are cross currents in the market. There are always cross currents, and there's a cyclical element and a secular element, and I think the markets are you know, taking into account the events and the data that we're seeing. Um, But on a secular basis, there's an overarching mark to reality that's going on And, and the environment that we had from 2012 to 2022 and frankly, from 1980 until 2020 was a disinflationary environment that culminated in an interest rate lockdown period after the financial crisis a lot of factors that gave us unusually low inflation, unusually low growth, unusual crises in Europe and in the US. And those are not only just over and and behind us, but they got replaced with a a post-pandemic environment. And so it became clear early last year that, you know, we were not going to be in a 2% 10-year treasury, a sub-zero bund environment but we were going to be in like a four five or 6% treasury environment. And um, so I think the markets are kind of getting dragged into that secular reality um, through the, the confluence of where the Fed funds rate is, where the ECB's deposit rate, where these have all been set and how the data is coming in and, and surprising people in its, uh you know in a lot of cases in its firmness on a global basis
1: so all of that has driven Treasury yields higher and, and Treasury prices lower. In fact, um, if things stay more or less where they are, we'll have the third consecutive negative year for the Bloomberg Treasury Index, which is unprecedented in the index's fifty-year history. Um, you know, do, do you think that that changes, or do you think that the um, that there'll still be some fragility in the bond market going into twenty twenty-four? Well, I think that in some
0: corners of
1: the bond market,
0: the the bear market ended decisively, you know, basically a year ago, you know, if you look at hard currency emerging markets, high yield spreads were high and yields were high. You know, we were over 4% in the 10 year treasury and uh, we're a little bit higher now. So your high quality government bonds have had a bumpy year where they underperformed cash. Um, but I think that was kind of the beginning of the beginning of the bull market in bonds, an unusual bull market. You know the bad news is that uh, you had all these pressures come about that brought us into a high interest rate environment. But now we're pretty much in the high interest rate environment. Um, there's a little bit of a conundrum uh, with the inverted yield curves in that you're you're not getting as much yield at the back end of the curve as you get at the front end. But big picture, these interest rate hiking cycles are winding down. Uh, The Fed has hiked 525 basis points. Maybe they have another hike or two to go. Maybe they don't. Um, But you're in the zone uh, from which over the next, you know, say, five or 10 years, you're going to earn the yield on long-term fixed income. And it's going to be something like what you would have gotten. Uh, you know, back in 2002 or 2005, you know, at those prior periods when interest rates were at, at respectable levels, fixed income was really revalued. So unless you think there's going to be another multiple hundred basis point, you know, surge from here, um, yield's really been restored and we're, we're somewhere in those final painful points of uh, interest rates banging around, you know, near their peaks.
1: So, Robert, since you look at the market holistically and and globally, one of the things that I've been concerned about is some of the technical. Uh, Aspects of what's gone on in in the the bond market globally. So, even if the Federal Reserve ends up uh, finishing its interest rate hiking cycle, uh, you know, is there the potential spillover from other central banks like the Bank of Japan, for example, if they do finally either get rid of their yield curve control policy or widen the bands even further than they already have? Is there a risk that there's some spillover from weakness in, in say, that market into Treasuries or Boons or um, you know, other other even uh, Asian, uh, more developed markets there.
0: You know, I could see that cut um, either way, big picture, although short term, I I agree with you. Um, And I think we should come back to the U.S. fiscal, because I think that's going to be a a more dominant driver. Um, But in terms of Japan, um, you know, they have achieved a decent rate. Of inflation. I mean, to the extent that that you know having inflation erode people's purchasing power, you know, to the extent that that's something that you want, and they have wanted that, right? They've been in a pernicious deflation. It's up in the you know three percent area, um, and um, clearly the Bank of Japan would like a couple years to be sure that inflation is really there, sustained at a two percent level. And you might say, well, why would you you want to wait? Well, there have been false dons before, if you will, but also there's been government motivations to get inflation. They've, they've modified their tax code to encourage people to increase wages. And I think they have um, used moral suasion to get companies to feel comfortable raising prices, raising wages. And they don't know how much of this is really organic. If you're at the Bank of Japan, you wanna, you wanna see it play out for a while, but they don't have time. Uh, the reason they, they don't is because of the currency markets. I mean, the yen, the dollar has been a strong currency. So a lot of currencies are going down versus the dollar, but the yen is going down versus a lot of currencies. And so if people on the ground aren't really feeling 3% inflation, they're feeling more like 5%, or I've heard some people say it feels like 5 to 10%, the inflation is really being felt there on the ground, then that creates uh, political instability and change of government and that creates less stable policy. And um, you know that makes it more difficult for the Bank of Japan to evaluate where they are. Uh, it also, more fundamentally for them, the weak currency impacts the rate of inflation. So I think these central banks, they don't like to see monetary conditions change rapidly and uncontrollably. We've seen that recently with the Fed talking about long-term interest rates. And I think that's the case in Japan where they've had this quick shift from we're on hold, we're going to be waiting for a very long time to actually, uh, we're moving our band, we're moving our cap, we might be moving the short rate. We'd like to wait, but we would like to, I think in a way, they want to scare the markets into stabilizing the currency so that they can get a clean read. Now, if they come out one day... To, to quickly answer your question, yeah, I think it would create a shock for treasuries, but in the long run, it could be a positive for, for treasuries as well.
1: So then there's an interesting aspect to that global environment where you could, excluding your currency hedging costs, you could wind up seeing interest rate differentials shift quite dramatically, where in, in the, the recent run up in Treasury yields, and when I say recent, I really mean the last 18 months to two years, uh, where you've, you have seen US Treasuries widen compared to Japanese government bonds. But of course, if the Fed's done and, and your, um, your inkling plays out, then you could potentially see over the next year or two, maybe Japanese yields rise vis-a-vis um, Treasury yields. Is that a, is that a fair statement?
0: Right. So I think that that's the thing is, you know, if you're buying, you know, 20 or 30 year JGB, yeah, you're picking up a lot of yield over cash, but you're going to have monumental price volatility and you don't really know where the Bank of Japan is in the cycle. What if it turns out that inflation is running pretty steadily at 2% because the currency keeps weakening and because they have to raise the, the cash rate? You know, over the next couple of years, maybe to 2%. I mean, that sounds absolutely crazy. But if you think about it, if the currency keeps going down, they may need to stabilize the situation. And everybody else has hiked 450, 500 plus basis points. Is it so crazy to think they may ha- have to hike 200 to stabilize their situation? So there could be a lot of downside risk in Japanese bonds. On the contrary. And I don't know if other people will see it this way or not, but to me, it feels a little bit um, like it did back in 2000. And we had hiked interest rates in the U.S. to 6.5%, and Japanese investors were looking at the U.S. naturally and saying, you know, it's incredibly expensive for us to hedge an investment in the U.S. Should we do it? And, um, you know, you can't deny the hedging costs, and you never know what's going to happen, but... You know, uh, the the case that we made at the time was kind of twofold. Number one, there's a lot of stuff in the dollar market or the euro market that gives you diversification, that gives you a spread advantage over governments, structured products, investment grade corporates, high yield. Cor- you have a full array of things to buy, which you do not have in Japan. Number one. Number two, we're at the end of the rate hiking cycle, and at the end of a rate hiking cycle, there's always a conundrum. should you extend duration i mean after all the curve is inverted you're going to give up yield in some way shape or form to extend but the fact of the matter is we're going to be near a peak in interest rates and you're going to earn that high yield or maybe even yields will end up falling and you'll get capital appreciation whereas in japan you know your risks may be predominantly to to the downside or a lot more volatility relative to the yield so um Granted, on the days that you know, Japan is, is shocking the markets with their policy changes, uh, I, it is a risk uh, driver out there, but I think big picture, it kind of highlights the different places of the cycle, which is, which is not all bad for Western bond markets.
1: Well, you tease this, Robert. So let's talk a little bit about the U.S. fiscal situation. Uh, it has been espoused by by some that as one of the primary drivers of why yields have been rising, particularly in over the last couple of weeks, um, as we record here on the 12th of October. Um, but but you know the, the big announcement, in, in my view, came in early August when the Treasury Department announced uh, larger than. Uh, expected uh, borrowing needs uh, you've obviously had the political angst in Washington um, presumably some of that might actually reduce deficits over the longer term because when you have split government like we have you tend to do get lower deficits we've shown that pretty clearly in, in some of our research um, but but you know what's your what's your take on on firstly, the current supply dynamics and and how they are affecting uh the market and market sentiment number one, and I guess number two, you know do you see any shifts in that sentiment going forward or or um or deficit improvement or worse deficits going forward?
0: so I think there is uh, is is no hope on the deficit front um, you know um, yes. Uh, you know, you could see a gridlock and no change, but we're on a pretty bad course right now. Uh, the budget deficit is large, and um, uh, and there doesn't seem to be any inkling to, to cut spending or to increase taxes. And uh, instead, I think there may be pressure to either do renewables, to do defense spending, uh, or both and uh, meanwhile your entitlement spending is going to go up so it looks pretty grim honestly in terms of the supply front so that in the abstract puts upward pressure on long rates puts pressure on treasuries in theory relative to other fixed income products but the but the reality is the treasury issuance is so big a hundred billion or more in bills on so many days and Um, You know, auctions, we have a light, you know, bond auction of 20 billion, but these, you know, two, threes, fives are incredible, you know, auctions pushing the 50 billion area at a crack. Um, And um, that's going to weigh on the market. I think the, the thing that is keeping us from being in the curve shape that we otherwise would be in are people's adaptive expectations, sluggish reaction to the change in the secular paradigm. So in other words, even if the Fed cut interest rates to 4.5%, with all of this issuance, you'd have a 5 or 5.5% tenure. I mean, if you go back to 94, 95, the Fed hiked interest rates a lot. They stabilized kind of in the 5 to 6% area. You know what happened with the curve shape? Let's say, you know, funds to 10s was... 50 to 100 basis points, uh, I would think you would have that curve shape if it turned out the Fed was in a steady state at that kind of a level of interest rates. Now, there are a lot of people, including the Fed's long-term dot, um, that, that show equilibrium nominal rates for the, for the Fed. The, the short cash rate in the long run is going to be in the twos. Um, But just looking at the results we're getting from the economy suggests to me that there's probably more like three or in the fours. Um, But I don't think we're going to be sustainably at a five and a half percent tenure because the market is convinced that rates are going to be lower. And markets can be wrong about that kind of thing for a veritable investment multiple of lifetimes. So if you think about it, I mean, from 1980 until 2020, just to grab around 40 years there, I mean, you had a secular decline in interest rates that occurred against a backdrop of positively sloped yield curves and consensus forecasts that routinely came in above market spot levels that had to fall over the course of their lifetimes to the spot level. So in other words, You had a, you know, a positively shaped curve forwards were suggesting rates were going to go up. And yet for those 40 years, rates were range bound or fell for the entire time by and large. And consensus forecasts would come in at the beginning of the year above market rates. And then by the end of the year, you know, those forecasts would have to come down. So markets you know, clung to that idea that interest rates should be higher, they've been higher, they're going to go back to being higher, they're certainly not falling, and they were wrong for 40 years, and now we have the opposite. So as soon as interest rates got back into this higher paradigm early last year, consensus forecasts went below spot. And if I go onto the Bloomberg right now and type uh, on the 10-year uh, treasury uh, end of this year median forecast or average, I guess it is, which is 4.05. And I sort from high to low, we have two 460s, and everything else is below that, and the average is 405. Uh, and uh, for the end of next year, it's three and three quarters. So the market is convinced the rates are going to go back down. And I think that is going to offset uh, a lot of the impact of this heavy supply and keep markets hang up for long duration, even though, uh, you know, a bite, they're, they're having a bite taken out of their yield with that inverted
1: curve. That's great. So any other, uh, we only have like two minutes more with you, uh, Robert. So any big picture thoughts, anything we didn't uh, cover today? Yeah. I mean, obviously you talked a lot about rates, but maybe something about corporates or mortgages sure. or, or- other parts of the uh, fixed income market.
0: Yeah, that's exactly where I would head. I mean, I think the, the big thing though, is the markets are gonna go range bound. You know, we've had central banks move several hundred basis points. Now they may do a hike or a cut or two, and the range for rates is gonna become a lot more hemmed in. And that is gonna get investors motivated to buy bonds, and that is gonna benefit spread product. And you're having a generally speaking soft landing out there, corporate credits, uh, most areas of the credit market, issuers have been terrified of a recession. They've been warned of it. They've been warned their pandemic recovery wouldn't be good. So that's really what you want as a bond buyer. You want issuers to be cautious. And so I think credit quality out there is okay. Spreads are average. But what tends to happen in this point of the cycle is spreads spend a lot of time going from average to tighter than average. Uh, and they bang around as people get concerned about all the cyclical cross-currents. But in the end, I think this is going to be a pretty good um, you know, two-year period, five-year period, 10-year period looking ahead for bonds because they have compellingly revalued. And these spread products are, are going to do well as the, uh, the, the big ranges and the big swings in interest rates really calm down.
1: That's great. That has been Robert Tipp. He is P. Jim's, uh, chief investment strategist and head of global bonds. Robert, thanks very much for coming on the FIC Focus podcast. Thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure. And now we turn to our interest rate intro segment with Will Hoffman, who is an associate in the U.S. rate strategy group here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Hey, Ira. Thank you so much for having me on the 200th episode of the FIC Focus podcast. Um, So I have a quick question for you today about some of the recent Fed speak we've had over the last two weeks. There's been a large focus on financial conditions. And while we've written quite a bit about financial conditions as well as the mechanisms of monetary policy transmission, um, I was hoping maybe for those who may not be as familiar with these concepts, could you break down maybe what financial conditions mean for the Fed and more importantly, what has driven these conditions tighter? Over recent weeks, yeah. So financial conditions is whatever you define it as. Um, <laughs> th- at the end of the day, but uh, generally speaking, you know, financial conditions are you know where are spread products, how much does it cost you to borrow money, whether it's an on a nominal basis or a spread basis, and what are the conditions of volatility in the markets. Um, so, um, so our financial conditions index, for example, takes into account rate and equity volatility. Those tend to uh, be pretty large drivers, actually, of our of our financial conditions index, but also um, but also how much does it cost you to borrow short term money uh, as well as uh, just general spread products. And as as Robert just mentioned, you know, spreads are kind of average, but they're also wider than they were not so long ago, right? a couple of a couple of weeks ago, as the bond sell off has hit corporate spreads as well as uh, as nominal treasury yields. Um, I think uh, I think in general, what what's been interesting about the recent move down in financial conditions, where financial conditions, according to our index, have tightened pretty dramatically over the last four or five weeks, is really it, it's not the fact that yields are higher. Because if if uh, if yields were higher and financial conditions were getting tighter, um, that would not be a surprise. But what you saw was financial conditions remaining kind of neutral, where when you had yields rising, but then you started to have this big an inversion or disinversion of the yield curve, where you had 10-year uh, year and 30-year yields uh, moving much higher than the front end. So you had two-year yields basically hovering of 5% or a little bit over. And then you had 10-year um, yields go from four and a quarter up to four and three quarters in a hurry. And that really helped tighten financial conditions. You had equity market volatility rise meaningfully. You had rate volatility rise meaningfully. And all of those things have tightened financial conditions. So you've had Fed speakers come out and say, hey, we don't, um, you know, we might not need to to tighten again because the market's doing it for us. And it's that financial conditions component that they think uh, might be doing it. Now, you know, that being said, we had that just this morning, the CPI report, which showed that that services prices were going up pretty heavily. So um, it's possible that the Fed will ultimately hike again. Um, But nonetheless, like financial conditions certainly are one of the one of the many things in the mosaic that we look at for um, where monetary policy and ultimately rates will go. with that, we're at time. I've been Ira Jersey, and I, uh, I hope that you enjoyed our, uh, our broadcast, our 200th episode of the FIC Focus podcast, um, which uh, we've been producing over the last two years. We appreciate, again, Robert Tipp coming on from PGM uh, and Will Hoffman. Uh, and until next time, I'd just like you all to be well.